You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we have the Executive Director of the Housing Institute of Australia, WA Branch, Michael McGowan. Back in the studio, you've been in before, mate, but every time we chat, it seems to become more and more critical around your job, the industry that you represent. And to be frank, finding a way to supply property for the tens of thousands of people who are coming into this state from either interstate or overseas, as well as young people moving into adulthood in Western Australia. Your job is clearly very interesting at the moment. It is. Thanks for having me back. It's always a good sign to be asked back on a show. So it's really great to be back. And yeah, it is a really interesting time. Last time we caught up, there was some exciting things coming. And I think the challenges are still 100% out there, as you say. There's still an industry that's working really hard towards the Christmas break to get a whole lot of people into their homes. So they're really focused on the short term. But the challenges across the medium and long term, I don't think necessarily get any easier as we look out towards 2024 and 2025. To put some context on this conversation, we're talking about a lot of builders at the moment, hopefully getting into their finishing trades, trying to get people, as you said, in before Christmas. The reality is most of these people would have been planning to get in before last Christmas, really. There's still about 30% of homes that are kind of in that 18 to 24 month mark and about 5 to 12% of homes that are two years onwards. So yeah, there is a, a fair chunk of the market that when they thought that they were getting involved in building their dream home or their next home, that they would be in by this time. But unfortunately, as you say, the way the market's played out and the demand for trades that we've seen over the course of the last two years has meant that there has been delays and, and unfortunately those people won't get in by Christmas. BGC has probably been the biggest story of the year, talking about them essentially shutting up shop for any new work until they finish the work that they brought in three and a half years ago. Are you aware of where they're at being the biggest proponent of supply in the state for the last couple of decades? Are there still blocks sitting there with a slab and no brick? Speaking to a few people, I think they've really gathered some momentum over the course of the last particularly six months. So obviously a decision came out that they weren't looking to sell anymore and they were going to focus on getting the jobs I think it was upwards of 4,000 at that point of time through the pipeline and completed. And from what I'm hearing, they've had record months of completions, really solid volumes coming through roof plumbing and getting through tiling. So with that focus on production over the course of the last six months, they've really hit their straps and really seeing some volumes come through. Seeing some trade prices start to really whip up, aren't we, in those finishing trades? You think about plasterers, even gotten past the roof plumbers to an extent. They've already put their rates up, but I'm hearing ear to the ground, especially plasterers painters have really started to whip their prices up in the last couple of months. Yeah, I think so. I think you talked about the pig in the python or the wombat in the snake or whatever mm. you'd like to call it, but it, it is now really around those finishing trades and whether it be tilers, plasterers, or even plumbers and electricians who are required for fit offs and to get everything ready for people to move into their houses. There's definitely been some movement in trade prices across those over the course of the last three to six months. Having said that, whilst that wombat is moving right down the back of that snake, it's probably fair to also say we haven't seen significant or even material or even noticeable price drops at the front of the snake or the front of the construction process, have we? No, definitely not. We've still seen increases over the course of the last 12 months. And I think some of the latest stats range anywhere between 3 and 10, 12%. Factory in WA and our isolation, travel and logistics and, and the cost of that energy costs over on the East Coast and through Europe increasing. There's just been no relief really from a material
material point of view, perhaps maybe in a labour point of view at the front end of that pipeline, but certainly not a material difference in the material cost. And I think that talks to what a lot of people, I guess, optimistically would have some level of brevity or confidence about is that prices are going to drop at some point. What goes up must come down. However, it really seems to be for me, a reality, a stark reality, one that is agreed across the informed people in the industry that prices are not going to be coming down. There is no time where the market can sit back and wait on their block or wait with their cash in the bank and go, oh, in 2024, 25, whatever year it is, you know, prices will drop. Are you as confident as I am that this is a new normal? We're not going to see material drops at the consumer level and if we saw any drops at the trade level that'd probably just be going back to the coffers of the builders who were trying to get some cash back in the door certainly we've had four peaks and four troughs over the course of the last 20 25 years but we haven't seen prices dip below about maybe half a percent down through those times and then they go straight back up so it's more of a peak and a plateau absolutely yeah it's a peak back to zero and then back up i do think that this probably will continue to increase i think the capacity constraints that we've got at the moment dictate that there will be consistent volume that goes through that pipeline so i don't think there'll be people sitting around twiddling their thumbs looking for work which will affect prices i certainly don't think there's going to be this drop and as we were talking about a little bit before you know that psychology of thinking that you're going to wait for a bargain is probably going to turn out that you're going to miss out over the course of the next couple of years as things continue to increase. What you're telling me is if you're thinking of building, if building is your end game at some point, whether it's now or in a couple of years, it is actually counterintuitive to wait. If you're going to build, it's actually cheaper now than it probably will be in a year's time, despite what you might think. I think so, yeah. There'll be certain caveats to some of that. If you're sitting around waiting, I'd certainly be having the discussion now about what you can get, what's within your price range, throw in interest rates in there and what they've done to people's borrowing capacity as well. And I I think if they're interested in building in the next two or three years, they really should be starting to have that conversation now because I'm sure we'll touch on through the course of the next half an hour or so, but price rise is not only material, but but in-house prices are likely to increase over that time as well and there's potentially some benefits to be made by getting into the market at this point. I was fortunate enough to be invited by the HIA to sit on a panel a couple of weeks ago at the HIA breakfast. Tim Reardon who is the chief economist for HIA was speaking, David Cress from Urbis was on the panel and Tiffany Allen from the construction training fund. Pretty cool panel to be sitting on but there seemed to be a resounding confidence especially from Tim and from David that in order to see supply come on in the way it needs to service the demand in this market we are going to have to see material price rises in the established market for people to justify adding supply to that market whether it be apartment developers or owner occupiers going in and buying a house and land and david and tim agree with each other and i would agree with them that that number is upwards of 30 percent over the next couple of years in the established market it sounds hard to believe we haven't felt that for a decade but it was a pretty stark and confident comment by the panel wasn't it mark you were there It was, yeah. I think overwhelmingly, like you said, there was an agreement amongst the panel that where we are in WA at the moment is probably on a trajectory of growth when it comes to established house prices. And we shouldn't be alarmed or even surprised by it because what we've seen on the East Coast is significant price increases over the course of the last five to 10 years. And we're back to where we started 10 years ago. So We're the anomaly, aren't we? Absolutely, yeah. Again, I think it's just about wrapping your head around the fact that there is some competition out there competition generally drives to increase in prices and as weird and as controversial as it sounds we do need that increase in established house prices to get more supply into the market to address some of the challenges we've got around affordability it isn't that funny right the headline essentially is we need prices to rise 
for prices to stabilize, if that makes sense. In order to be able to have enough supply on the market to have a stable market, we actually need prices to rise to justify the supply. It's hard to get your head around, but that's the reality, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And I think when you throw in the cost of construction, it has increased so significantly. There'd be plenty of builders out there that would say pretty close to 50% over the course of the last two or three years. We need those established house prices to jump to that next level to make, particularly, I think, in that medium and high-density option feasible and to stack up. Given what we've seen in the amount of people coming in through our immigration numbers and the demand there is on housing, that Greenfields work is just going to tick over and that'll be thirteen to 17,000 homes a year. But if we really want to make a dent in some of the challenges that we've got at the moment, we need to find a way to make those medium to high density options stack up. And the only way they do is seeing the median house price increase. The other thing that came out of the panel was that we essentially need double, if not triple, the supply that we're currently pumping out in WA. It's fanciful, isn't it, that suddenly somehow our training capacity, our apprenticeship capacity, and therefore our qualified trade capacity has the ability to double in size to service the requirement. And these aren't throwaway numbers here. As you said, we're building in the teens right now, 13, 15, something around there, depending on who you ask. The federal government says we need 25,000 a year what the numbers the HIA has put together is that we actually need 35,000 a year. These are significant increases that, for context for everyone listening, we've never even come close to building in a year. Yeah, if we need to keep up with the demand that we're seeing at the moment, then it's that high. I think as a state, we should be aiming for that 25 number and and a way of maintaining that consistency between that 22 to 25. Is it possible? We did it 10 years ago once. What we need to do is we need to have a plan, as silly as it sounds, a plan to get there and and then how to stay there. And I think what the last six or eight months has really proven is that there's so many aspects of housing, whether it be the community housing sector, the social housing sector, private, high density, medium density, or even the smaller developments within the inner suburbs and the Hamilton Hills, the W's, the Scarboroughs, the Olimaras, they all play a critical role over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And all of those aspects need to be, I guess, aware of what each other's plans are and how they're going to go about it to be able to get to that number. Tiffany Allen, as I said, was on that panel. When you speak to her more directly, what are her views around the state's ability to actually deliver the people we need to build these homes? She would agree that what's been proven over the course of the last two or three years is that when economies get into trouble, then governments generally invest in building stuff. So there There is a real upside in people looking at a career in a trade. What we all grapple with is that we've got a bit of a leaky bucket in the residential construction industry and we keep putting people in the top and there's holes in there and they go into the resources industry or or other industries. And I think we're all, and Tiff is really passionate about drilling down into why, and, and that is how do we make our industry more stable so that when people come into it, they do see it as a career and have a pathway. How do we make them feel safe on site? How do we create workplaces for them where they are going to be stimulated and they are going to see the benefits of their work? And I think as soon as we start to address some of those challenges, then we'll start to see more people come and and try our career. I think we often take for granted that people who aren't going to university would just go to a trade. If you're not going to be in uni, well, a trade's good for you or you're going into unskilled work. I guess we assume that people just be interested in that trade or feel comfortable, feel safe in that trade. But I think one thing that really become apparent since COVID is that being a tradie, especially on a construction site, has not been the safest, most enjoyable 
place to work over the last few years. If you're thinking about being a trade and you've got mates who are in the trade, the first thing they're probably going to say to you is, mate, it is just so tough at the moment. I'm so overworked. I would reconsider it. Just go up to the mines who get paid the same or better and you won't have all the stress. I think it's a real mindset shift. It really has to be for the first time an appreciation that these guys aren't bulletproof. They're people who were probably in a lot of senses, and I've seen it on site, struggling with a bit of mental health, need a break, need to find some incentive that isn't just financial for getting up and performing their trade every day. They're a really great representation of society, our trade base, and there's some that have done fantastically well over the course of the last two or three years and have potentially set themselves up for a really great life or career with some of the work and the opportunities that become available. But it is hard work at the end of the day, and they are working as hard as they can, trying to set themselves up that comes with challenges and it, it is something that we really need to be conscious of and we need to continue to find ways to make it safer and after these people while they're on site i think a big point is we can't just keep importing trades we need to build that base like we have over decades in australia from our own kids and i think one thing that tiffany allen brought up which i've said on the podcast before is there is also a massive opportunity in somehow trying to incentivize women to get into the trade space. Obviously, a huge population of females, half of us are females, right, in this state, and we just don't see the representation. And when you think about especially, if you can get them interested in the work that's being done, it's not just rolling out in the sun every day as a bricklayer. There's so many jobs that can be done. And then the financial reward that comes from that compared to a, a lot of careers in Western Australia. If we could find a way to make it more attractive for the female population there's a workforce there that we could be taking out of another couple of industries and sorry to them that would fix this problem straight away yeah absolutely and like you say through some of the ways that we go about it we're almost limiting ourselves to 50 percent of the population to be able to draw from i think what we've seen and what we can learn from is what's happened in the resources industry and to some extent the civil contracting space as well i think they have done really well and led the way in this space and maybe changed some of the attitudes that have existed in the past about what women can do and can't do we should be learning from those experiences and finding ways to support more diversity on site more women getting involved and can only bring good things it's all well and good to try and plan for having the trades to get to site and build these things but they need to be employed by someone that is the builder the head contractor in this situation and what we have seen unfortunately over the last couple of years is that shrinking of the fraternity less and less builders around because a lot of them either closing up shop not worth it we saw that at the start of the building grant boom and then over the last few years we've seen more and more of these mainly mid to smaller tier companies a lot of them who really do focus on their craft and those individual homes becoming insolvent and in doing so leaving a lot of trades financially holding the baby what's the feeling on the ground from you as to how solvent our industry is at the moment as we said before we've seen the biggest builder close the doors for a while it probably led to a couple of the guys like new choice and dal alcox and summit taking a lot of that work off of them can you give us a bit of a story whether you're seeing strength in this industry and can that consumer mum and dad coming off of the footpath have confidence in their builder to actually get this thing done going forward yeah i think they can i'm bullish when i have a bit of a look forward but also recognize and really cognizant of the fact that there is still a lot of builders going through some challenges that they've been working through for the last three years. Some of them fully outside of their control. When we talk about trades who have been really challenged through this space, I would argue tooth and nail that it's been the builder that's kind of worn the brunt of what's happened over the course of the last three years, whether it be financially, whether it be the amount of rework and reorganisation that they've had to do either within their own business or dealing with trades to kind of reschedule things because things haven't happened as, as they 
potentially should have been scheduled in the past. It has been a really challenging time for them. And, and then you include in that some of the challenges that have existed when trying to tell a consumer that there's delays and mm. trying to work through with them why exactly they've happened. And, and there's been instances, as I said, where it's been outside of their control and, and probably some instances where it has been, it has been you know, stuff that they've done or, or ways that they've been set up. But I think looking forward now, there is certainly a good proportion of the industry that has navigated some of those challenges and is navigating their way through the other side, but still a, a portion that we need to kind of wrap our arms around and, and kind of help get to the shore. So if you're a consumer right now, considering building, you've gone out to Henley Brook, Canning Vale, Southern River, Treby, Piara Waters, Hammond Park, these areas, you've found a block of land you're interested in, you see value in building your own home for the future against the established house price, or even simply because you've given up trying to buy an established house, you've gone, you know what, I am going to build. What are the top tips from the executive director of the HIA for doing your due diligence? As a consumer, you're not sophisticated and you don't want to offend the builder in a way. You want to ask questions that are reasonable. How do I make sure my build is actually in a good financial space in the first place? Can I ask for their financials? How far can I push those questions before it starts to become a little bit awkward? I'd almost argue that our consumers now are as sophisticated as they've ever been when they're going through this process. So they are looking through building and energy websites to understand the registration process. And there's plenty of great material on the building and energy website about what to consider when you are thinking about engaging with a builder. Like I said, I think there's enough volume around at the moment that you have the ability to do a thorough amount of research. So it is the display home villages. It is understanding what each builder can offer. It is sitting down with them and it doesn't necessarily have to be some of our big volume builders you've got some great custom home builders or or great builders in western australia that are happy to take you to some of their ex-clients and you through some of their homes or ask for referrals and, and to speak with people because it is a relationship at the end of the day that is going to be there for at a minimum 12 to 18 months and at a maximum there's seven years of structural warranty periods and other engagements post the actual build process. So it's important that you can have a relationship with that person moving forward and obviously the bigger the company, maybe those different relationships may exist. But I think if I was a consumer out there now, I'd, I'd certainly feel comfortable that I'd I'd be out there talking to four or five different builders, see who I got a really good read on, doing a bit of background research. You know, I'm not a huge fan of some of the Facebook sites that are out there, but they can there be are, quite vindictive. They can be quite vindictive, and and you know, there's generally people that have had a bad experience on there. But there are some actually some pretty good ones on there with people that give you an unaffected viewpoint on whether it comes down to your house design or a, or a particular engagement with the builder. So should I be checking houses under construction, making sure I'm taking a few weeks to make that decision with the builder? If you checked out their homes first of November, for example, you'd like to see some progress by the 1st of December. If you don't, maybe you can ask some questions as to why. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think if you're looking to build, particularly in those greenfield suburbs, then it's pretty easy to drive around some of those display areas, your Brabham's and heading up into that north space or, or down to Byford and see what the activity is on some of those sites. Understanding that we've got still some challenges in the pipeline when it kind of gets to lock up but um, and, and towards finishing the home. But I think it's quite reasonable and to, to kind of drive around and, and see and, and have those conversations with your builders. One thing that people in the industry would recognize or talk about is the limitations that professional indemnity insurance, which every builder needs to take on a residential house construction before they get their build permit from council. seems to me when I have my ear to the ground that builders, especially the smaller ones, have had their 
PI reduced, shrunk over the last few years, which is limiting their ability to actually do more work, expand, grow, solve this problem of supply. You can have all the trades you want, you can have all the confidence, all the clients signed up, ready to go. But if QBE, the sole provider of professional indemnity insurance, doesn't want to play ball, doesn't have the view that this builder, small, medium, large, can take on more work, and in fact may need to take on less work, then you might be sitting there as a consumer stuck for months waiting for them to essentially finish your build so they can start yours. Can you explain that and then also talk to how much of a problem that may or may not be in the industry at certain levels in the industry? So every builder is required to take out indemnity insurance on their build and and that is for the protection of the consumer should something happen to the builder in case of death or insolvency or, or anything like that. And it's, I think, a really important part of our industry. There's certainly some challenges around that about there only being one sole provider. They're sort of a kingmaker in a way, aren't they? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, but it is also a really important function and looking back two or three years, personally, I think they played a really critical role in potentially saving a few businesses who probably wanted to sign up more than they could under those limits, but understand that, that now we're probably in a different situation. There was a 30% sweeping increase in indemnity caps and covers about 12 months ago to give the industry some respite, I guess, from the, or it was an acknowledgement from QBE and probably the state government that materials and costs had increased by that much. So it was appropriate. It is a really critical role and it's protection to the consumer, but also the ability to make sure that the builders that we've got operating are solvent and are operating in the right way. And they even brought in some additional accounting requirements for builders that have more than a $10 million cap to make sure that they were reporting it as general accounts, which again gives us the ability to compare apples for apples. I think a number of our builders have different ways of doing their books and it's really important for QBE to have a really good understanding of, of who they're letting build and how much they're going to be able to build. But as you say, at the moment, we've got an insurance arm at HIA which provides identity insurance and we're not seeing some of the conversations that you referred to where builders are at the top of their limits and restricted from taking on more work, there's a little bit of capacity that still remains there. That's a good thing. Which is a great thing because there are still cash flow issues out there and it's really important for builders to be able to bring on some more work that they can price accordingly to the market as it is at the moment and be able to keep jobs moving while they've got some of those existing jobs that we spoke about under constructions that are probably not very profitable at the moment. Okay, so not as much of an issue as some might think, but let's say that we wanted to double check. Is it something that we can ask the builder to say, hey, look, can you show me what your indemnity insurance limit is and how much of that you're currently using? Is that a Uh, fair question to ask? I've never heard of anyone asking it, but I think it's an important conversation to have before you're signing that contract is understanding what their limits are and making sure that they are across it. Because as you say, if someone's not across it, could sign a contract and then be waiting for a period of time when a house might need to be completed to free up a couple of hundred thousand dollars in their indemnity And these houses are taking months longer to finish as well. Absolutely, yeah. If I was looking at a, let's take Dale Alcock or an ABN group or a new choice or whoever it might be, they're probably not having that conversation with the salesperson that you're dealing with. And you're probably not as concerned as well. Yeah, but if that's part of your due diligence, I think it's a reasonable question to be having with your builder. A discussion around it without maybe getting into the nitty gritty of kind of what that looks like. So to provide a bit of a summary on where we're at in the market with regards to being able to supply that property in WA, the irony of it is the less we supply, the more prices are most likely going to go up. For us to supply more, we need prices to go up. It's nearly a circular situation right now. We're currently building 
building 13 to what 15,000 homes yep how many do you think we can build next year ear to the ground talking to your builders you've added all the numbers up on the spreadsheet where do you think we'll be a year from now i think we're still around that 15 to 16,000 homes market from a starts point of view i'd like to think that we're able to finish a few more that are under the construction but i still think there's some restrictions in regard to the supply of labor that can actually get us through that volume but i still think we wait for those established house prices to increase and capacity to grow until we see some real growth in that multis and high density market i, I think we're going to struggle to get above 16 to 17,000 over the next two years so what you're intimating to me is essentially we're capping out with regards to the house and land space. There just isn't any more capacity. If we wanted to get to 25,000, the solution is not in house and land. It's just not big enough. So what you're saying is to fill that extra 10,000 dwellings that we need to get going, it has to come from that apartment built form space. It has to come from the big apartment builders, your packed, your Thomas, your multiplex, these sort of builders. And if it can't be them, then who's it going to be? Well, I think we need to look at attracting expertise to come in from the East Coast as well. Again, once it becomes feasible for those, whether they're parked up at the moment or whether they're not interested and whether it's just the luxury apartment market that's that's moving at the moment, I think once it becomes feasible, then people are going to be there and willing to take on the challenge. The government is, I think they're doing some great things around that space to remove some of the restrictions and create some of the opportunities. The foreign buyer surcharge is something that we should continue to look at to remove. We'll to keep trying. Right? Public open space is probably something that we shouldn't be looking at at this time where we're trying to get that market to move. I do think that from a land delivery point of view, I don't think we have capacity to deliver more than fifteen to 16,000 house and land packages as a market. So it's that infill development space and that high density living that we need to get to go from 17 to 25. How many apartments do you think we've started this year? My good friend David Cresp has reliably told me, although I believe there's some conjecture that it's about two apartment complexes that have started this year and somewhere between 120 and 160 apartments in total. So we're only about 9,800 apartments off of where we need to be this year. Absolutely. Do you think yeah. we can start that in the next month? We may miss. <laughs> yeah, we may year. miss that. We may just, miss that this year, yeah. I think. But that's the stark reality, isn't it? That we are nowhere near close because it just doesn't work. And one other thing that Dave said on this panel a couple of weeks ago that I'd love to share with the audience, and you know, you were listening to this, is that doing the numbers for developers to actually justify instigating a two-bedroom apartment in Western Australia, they probably need to sell that apartment for $900,000. Listeners will fall off their chair when they hear that. That sounds absolutely fanciful, but that's the stats, isn't it? It's, correct me if I'm wrong, but around about $11,000 a square metre or something like that. Yeah, that, I think it's more like fourteen. But yeah, that, that they need to, well, maybe a construction for eleven and sell yeah. for fourteen. Um, which is crazy, but that's where it's at at the well, moment. I remember and five years ago, not being sure if I could stack up selling apartments in North Netherlands for 8,000 a square meter. That's where we were only five years ago. Yep. Now we're talking about just a normal apartment in Maylands at 14,000 a square meter. In the meantime, you could buy a house with land for that equivalent product, right? That's the structural shift we're both realizing on this table as we're speaking to it and everyone's ears are pricking up here listening. We need serious material growth in established house prices. And it's not a, oh, it's a wish list. 
I genuinely believe that this is the only way out for us in Western Australia. There will be material price rises in Western Australia in the established house market over the next few years. Otherwise, we will continue to see our population build 10,000 homes a year less than we need to, which again, just self-feeds the price rises in the first place. What makes that even harder to wrap your head around, as we were talking before, is what we've been through the last 10 years. We, we went through the ups through 13, 14, 15, and then this massive down. And mm. I was probably lucky enough to build in 2019 when prices were, as it turns out, ridiculously cheap yeah. in a market that you could deliver a standard home in six or seven months. And then what we've been through over the last three years and, and the challenges that that's presented. So you've got over 10 years, a wide variety of consumers that have had such a different experience. And when we sit around at the barbecue or the Christmas table over the next couple of months and talk about that, that's going to be even harder for people to wrap their head around because we suddenly have to believe that oh my god the story is changing yeah it's the only way out of this yeah and you know we're seeing it in our neighborhoods now i'm in eastwick park and we've seen some houses sell for cracking prices over the course of the last two or three months and i, I think that'll continue well i think that's the message and we need to leave this conversation out is at the top of the pile in the construction market Michael McGowan, executive director, was there, agrees, was on the panel, just like many of the many of the experts we get in here and have in, had in here recently, that we need to be incentivizing supply any way we can at the developer and consumer level. But more to the point, the reality is in order to justify that, provide that incentive, we need to and are going to see material price rises in the established market over the next couple of years to do that. Absolutely. Michael McGowan. Thank you very much for coming in, mate, and have a fantastic Christmas, and I'm sure we'll see you in the new year. Thanks, Trent. Great to be back. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast, or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis, and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!